Well, good morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. I hope you all have uh, had a wonderful week and you're having a great Lord's Day already. I hope you've tuned in to our This Week at Gray Gables, which is av- available on our website and our Facebook page, and you've already been able to listen to the songs, to uh, read the scripture for this week, and you are engaged and ready to open God's word with us together. Um, as always, we're praying for each and every one of you that cannot be here because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're praying this thing away and we're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ that soon we'll be able to worship together uh, in person. All of us be able to worship together in person. Uh, But this morning we find ourselves again in 1 Thessalonians. We are now in chapter 5 and I hope you're sitting down because you're going to be shocked when I tell you that we're actually going to expound verses 1 through 11 this morning. I know you were probably expecting probably verse 1a, uh, but we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 5. And so hopefully you got your Bibles open and you are ready to read through this together. Let's read verses 1 through 11. I'll pray and then we'll begin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 11 says this, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, uh, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, uh, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also uh, are doing." Uh, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we do indeed thank you for this, your wonderful word. We thank you for this revelation. Father, would you help us now in our weakness and in our frailty to rightly understand it? Would you be with me as I uh, attempt to interpret and explain it? Would you be with us all as we attempt to hear it, that it might be impressed upon our hearts, that it might bring about the response that you so desire in your people. Father, would you grant us grace for this endeavor and Holy Spirit, would you work mightily among us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen, thank you. I am sure that you are aware, regardless of your church background, that the day of the Lord, the end of all things, the end times is a very popular topic. Uh, it is of great interest to many a people. Uh, in fact, not too long ago, uh, when I was studying for this sermon, I went ahead and I was on christianbooks.com and I just decided to type in uh, books about end times prophecy or books about the end times into the search engine there. 
uh, and to see what I came up with. And I had 1,400 books pop up as a result. 1,400 books on the end of times. That is a lot of books. And so I thought, okay, certainly there will be that many books on a subject like justification, right? A very important, great truth such as justification. There are sure to be just as many books there. 400 books on justification. So 1,400 on the end times and 400 on justification. In fact, I remember uh, before I came to this church at age 12, I was raised in a church that was very much pre-trib. And if you know what that means, good for you. If you don't, uh, you can ask me later. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Essentially what it means is I was raised uh, in the left behind age when it came to doctrine of eschatology, meaning those books of fiction, left behind books, served as all of uh, our doctrine concerning end of times. And so I grew up with this constant dread of waking up and everyone else in the house being gone. Uh, actually, I shared a room with my brother, so I knew he was there, but that didn't really mean much to me at the time. Uh, and so I woke up immediately thinking if it was quiet in the house that it's happened. Uh, the rapture has taken place. I actually sat as a young child at my kitchen table, and I remember very distinctly looking up at the pantry, at the cupboards, and just wondering how in the world I was going to be able to grab the peanut butter if my parents were taken away by the rapture. Uh, that was the effect it had on me. Uh, the reality is, is much of our thinking about the day of the Lord, about the times and the seasons, the end times can have the effect of creating fear and anxiety in us. So the big idea of today's passage is actually just the opposite of that. Paul's big idea here in verses 1 through 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is Christians have nothing to fear on the day of the Lord. Did you hear me? Christians have nothing to fear on the day of the Lord. That is our big idea. And so my goal this morning is I want to take us through verses 1 through 11 and prove to us from the Bible how that is the case. That Christians have nothing to fear on the day of the Lord. And the first thing that I want to look at that I believe this Bible teaches us, this particular passage teaches us, is that the day of the Lord uh, will come certainly and unexpectedly. The day of the Lord will come certainly and unexpectedly. That is what I believe uh, this Bible teaches us, especially in the first three verses, in verses 1 through 3 of our text. Let's start by looking at verse 1. Paul says, uh, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren. And so though this topic may sound a little bit similar to the topic we've been studying the last two weeks, found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, there's a subtle difference here, and I don't know if you noticed it. Uh, in that passage, as we saw the last two weeks, Paul was addressing the anxiety and the grief that the Thessalonian believers felt for their deceased believers who would not be present on the day of the Lord. Now he's addressing the believers themselves, those who are still alive and living in anticipation of still being alive at the return of the Lord. That's what Paul is going to address in this section. Uh, this, expressions, the, the, this expression, the times and the seasons, refers to those eschatological end times events that will take place. When the Lord himself descends from heaven, coming for his people and also coming in judgment. 
it would seem that the Thessalonian believers had some concerns about this event. So just to clarify, again, the previous passage in 4, 13 through 18 was addressing the fate of deceased believers, and here it is traded for the topic of living believers who are concerned about their own faith. Paul begins this topic by saying, really, you have no need that I should write to you concerning this. That's what he says, again, in verse 1. Look at it with me. He says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Paul has recently used the same rhetorical device when he explored the topic of brotherly love in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. He said there as well, you have no need that I should write to you. Uh, in verse 2, Paul then specifically states why they have no need of anything to actually be written to them. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Notice the emphasis that's placed upon who knows and the quality of that knowledge. Paul writes, you yourselves, Thessalonians, you know. See, you know would have been significant here, would have been sufficient, but he adds this, you yourselves, in order to emphasize that the Thessalonians already possess all the requisite knowledge they needed in order to be prepared for the day of the Lord. Then he goes on and says, you know, not only do you know it, you yourselves know it, but you know it perfectly. They know what they need to know perfectly. And what is it that they need to know? Paul goes on that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Again, the day of the Lord is an expression familiar to the Thessalonians, and it's familiar to us to some extent. It's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day when the kingdom Christ inaugurated in his first coming through his life, death, and resurrection will fully and finally be consummated. It is going to be a day of tremendous victory, of redemption, of glory, healing, and freedom, and unimaginable blessing for God's people. But as I believe we'll see, it's also going to be a day of justice and judgment, destruction, wrath, and punishment, and the utter defeat of God's enemies. Uh, Paul says this day is going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be unexpected. See, a thief doesn't call you and say, hey, just wanted to let you know I'm going to be at your house in 30 minutes to rob you. Hope to see you there. Nor does a thief sit in your driveway and honk their horns three times before trying to break into your window. No, the thief comes when everybody is sleeping, when, when, when everybody least expects them to come and rob. That's when they arrive. So if you'll allow me to digress just for a brief moment here. Because according to the Bible, there are signs of the Lord Jesus' coming. Hence, the 1,400 or so books that have been written about these signs, helping us interpret them so we might see from a distance the Lord Jesus coming and be prepared. But I would argue that that's not actually the goal of the signs offered in Scripture. In fact, according to the Bible and history more broadly, these signs have been present since the first century. 
In fact, if you were able to see in our This Week uh, Greg Abel's post, the scripture reading this week is from Matthew 24. And, and I hope you've been able to read that and I hope it, it sticks with you a little bit to, to be able to study because what I want to do is I want to go through the list that was given in our scripture reading and think about these things that are given as signs of the end to come. If these things are things that have been present, that are present and that will be present in the future, okay? Let's go through that list in that scripture reading and just think about those things. Wars and rumors of war, check. Has been present, is present, and will be present. Nation rising against nation, is that something we've seen, will see, and have seen? Absolutely, check. Famines, pestilences, and earthquakes, check, check, check. Tribulations, apostasy, and martyrdom, check, check, check. In fact, Paul even writes to the Romans that the Romans' faith is known to the world, that this gospel has been made known to the world. So even in a sense, before the death of the apostles, the gospel had been proclaimed to all the known world. We even see examples of the abomination of desolation take place in types and events that have taken place through history. You think of Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think of Titus in 70 AD, the final judgment described in Matthew 24 was foreshadowed in the destruction of Jerusalem. Types of the Antichrist have always been in the world, according to 1 John. Here's my point in saying all of this. If you want to look towards signs to be able to set dates for the Lord's return, you'll have no problem finding them. None. Every generation has done so. Every generation has looked and and set forth dates based on the signs because the signs are always present. Signs of the Lord's grace that the gospel is proclaimed until the coming of Christ. Signs of continuing opposition against God's people. Tribulation, apostasy, martyrdom. Signs of impending judgment, earthquakes, famines, etc. Those signs are present and they've been present and they will be present. Will they be intensified as the coming day of the Lord approaches? I believe so. But the point is, they're not there for us to set dates or make predictions. The Lord Jesus himself said that no one knows the hour except the Father. So while we might, may not be able to be certain about when Jesus is going to return, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians here, we can be certain that he will return. Isn't that the very point of the signs anyway? That despite all that we see as we continue to encounter opposition and building and advancing the kingdom of God, as we wait a longing for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we can still have confidence that his return is certain? That's the point of those signs. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians also, that the return of Christ is certain. Paul goes on, and I want you to look at this verse in verse 3. He says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Can I ask you a question? Who is it that the thief surprises then? According to verse 3. Uh, Because remember, the Thessalonians here, they're concerned that they are not going to be ready for the day of the Lord, that they'll be surprised by the day of the Lord. But who is it, according to verse 3, that's really the one that's going to be surprised? It is those who are saying peace and safety. It's those who are saying, no worries, everything will always go on as it always has. 
Uh, it's those believers and those citizens of Thessalonica, or those unbelievers and citizens of Thessalonica, it was the unbelievers who were fond of that expression, peace and safety. These words were written on their coins. They were written on their monuments. Not always together, but these two words were associated with Rome. Uh, you've probably heard of the Pax Romana. Pax is the peace that Rome brings. And so I just want you to picture this. The Apostle Paul comes into Thessalonica and he's proclaiming the gospel saying there is another king, a true king, and he is going to come and judge the world according to righteousness. You need to know him. You can kind of picture the response of the audience. Another king? But we have peace and safety. We don't need another king. We're perfectly fine. Friends, notice the kingdoms of this world will always promise peace and safety. But Paul's point here is even while men and women are convinced that all is well, the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night and it comes unexpectedly. It's just like it was in the days of Noah. That brings us now to our next point that we see in verses four through five. It is the day of the Lord will not surprise the Thessalonians. The day of the Lord might come, certainly, and it might come unexpectedly, but the day of the Lord will not surprise the Thessalonians, and by virtue of those who are tied and united to Christ through his word, it should not surprise us. It'll surprise those who are saying peace and safety, but notice he says it will not surprise the Thessalonians. Why? Because they have a new status, why will they not be surprised at the day of the Lord? Because they have a new status. Notice what Paul says here in verse four. He says, but you brethren are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. I love this. This is what we call an indicative statement. It's, it's the fact that Paul is just simply making a statement of fact, of truth here. And the statement of fact he makes is that the day of the Lord will not overtake you, brothers, because you are not in darkness. Now, that's a bold claim. He says, that is not who you are anymore. That's a bold claim. And he connects that bold claim to that previous statement by using the conjunction word, but. And I've actually heard an entire sermon just preached on that conjunction word, but there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains comes upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. What a ominous, dark, foreboding note followed by a, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. Not so with you because you are not in darkness for that day to come upon you like a thief in the night. And so why won't it overtake them? Not only because they have a new status, but also because they're not in darkness. They are ready for the coming of the Lord. They are prepared. They are steadily walking the narrow path. Uh, Paul goes on and says in verse 5 there, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not sons of the darkness, nor of the night. Or sorry, sons of the night, nor of darkness. So you see light, darkness, day and night. The contrast is clear. Paul's emphasizing the new status they have. No longer being sons of darkness, sons of the night, but sons of light, sons of the day. And I love that Paul applies this to all of them. 
right? Because there is no room here for a picture of Paul speaking to a mixed body of believers and unbelievers. He's speaking to the church, the professing Christians at Thessalonica. He's speaking to the whole community of believers, and he says that you are all sons of the light, sons of the day, not of the night, nor of darkness. They share in the quality of light, not darkness. Light is in reference both to what they know, that they've been enlightened by the word of God. They know about the Lord and his coming, but also their morality. They no longer oppose to the Lord. They now walk in his ways. They have been clothed in Christ. They stand in his righteousness. I'm going to say a little bit more about this in a couple of moments, but I just want to point out here that the metaphor uh, between day and night and light and darkness is essentially the same metaphor. Uh, Those who sleep often sleep at night, uh, so the thief comes in the night unexpectedly, but those who are of the day are often generally those who are awake so they can be ready and steady for the return of the Lord. And that's where Paul goes next. In verses 6 through 8, he emphasizes that because of their new status, because they are now children of the day, children of light, it compels them to be ready and steady for the Lord's return. And so we've seen already that the day the Lord comes certainly and unexpectedly, the day the Lord will not surprise the Thessalonians, and now we get to see that the day of the Lord compels God's people to be ready and steady. The day of the Lord compels God's people to be ready and steady. Paul moves on and he says, in light of this fact, in light of your new knowledge, look how you are to respond. He says in verse 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Look how Paul does this, by the way. He introduces this imperative and he does it with an antithetical statement, meaning not X, but Y. Not this, but that. Not as those who are asleep, but those who are watching and being sober. And when he uses that verb sleep here, what he's referring to are those who are of spiritual indifference. Paul's describing the person who is in no way ready for the return of the Lord Jesus, but instead they are just drifting down the streams of life, enjoying the view, completely unaware of the impending doom of the waterfall ahead. And then he says, uh, let us watch. Therefore, let us watch. He contrasts that with this idea. And I think that that phrase, let us watch, really connotes with it uh, the idea of always constantly being ready, always on alert. So notice the contrast between the spiritual indifference of the children of darkness and the spiritual alertness of children of light. There is a sharp contrast here. You could almost say the difference is night and day. That's the worst joke. I'm so sorry. That, I thought that was funny when I wrote it down. It's, it's, uh, it's not. Uh, that was a dad joke and a bad pastor joke. So you're welcome for that uh, pun very much intended there. But it's true. There's a sharp difference uh, between these two. Be sober, as he says. What does he mean by that? Well, it's a literal translation of a verb that is used figuratively here to refer to sober-mindedness. It refers to being well-balanced and self-controlled, not given to extremes or to rash conduct or decisions. And I would argue that these two verbs are not being used synonymously uh, here either. Let us watch. It exhorts them to be alert. It exhorts them to be ready. 
Whereas be sober is an exhortation to be well-balanced or an exhortation to be steady, not to be rash, to stay the course, not to be tossed to and fro. Be ready and be steady. So Paul continues in verse 7. He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk in the night. That's just an explanatory sentence there in verse 7. Paul's explaining what he just said to reinforce this exhortation to let us watch and be sober. The norm is that people at night sleep. That's the normal way of things. Sleeping people are not ready. The analogy is fairly obvious here. The metaphor works even in our day and age for the most part. Now, mind you, we live in a culture where this is less true than it was in the first century. Uh, We actually do stay up much later nowadays. We have things like night shifts. There are quite a few people, even in this congregation, who are awake more nighttime hours than daytime hours. Uh, That wasn't the case in Thessalonica. This metaphor would have been understood immediately, though. Those who are asleep are not ready. They will be roused from their sleep to find that all they have trusted in, all that they have loved has been taken away from them. Sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Uh, Likewise, people wait often to get drunk at night. That's the normal way of things. Is that always the case? No, but in general, it's more common to find a group of drunk people at night than it is in the day. There's a reason people are fond of saying uh, that nothing good happens after 10 p.m., right? Sleeping people are not ready. Drunk people are not steady. They stumble to and fro. They give in to rash and ridiculous behavior. And when the thief meets them in a dark alley, they become easy prey. So Paul's repetition of at night in this verse prepares the reader for another glorious conjunction here. And it's the same word. But, he says, but let those of us who are of the day, let us who are of the day, in verse 8, so sleep, people who sleep usually sleep at night. People who are drunk get drunk at night. But he says, let us who are of the day. Here, when I, I think when Paul is using the phrase the day, uh, he's attempting to communicate something far greater than just the metaphor of people are generally awake during the daytime. I think he wants something more there. Remember, these Thessalonian believers are of a different order, a different age. They are of the day. That is the day of the Lord, the future age of righteousness that will be finally established at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I feel like I need to say that is because, listen, we may look, we may feel, we may even think and act like we are no different than our neighbor, right? Like there is not a qualitative difference between us, the church, and unbelievers. Uh, and, And listen, it might be easy to be deceived into believing that that's the case, especially if we were to look at our lives and at times see those who are unbelievers who seemingly look like they are more morally upright than we are ourselves. But friends, the reality is those who do not belong to Christ belong to the darkness. They belong to the night and we belong to the day, the light. In other words, we are a new creation. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? We are not even of this evil age or this order of things. Uh, The future has been broken into the present so that we actually belong to the future. 
The rest of humanity lives in darkness. They belong to the night. They're not ready, nor are they steady, and destruction will come upon them like a thief in the night. So Paul writes, let us be sober. We're children of the day, children of the light, so we should be steady. We don't have to be all worked up about the latest signs of the times. We don't have to be shaken by reports of blood moons or the identification of who the Antichrist is or the man of lawlessness. We don't have to be anxiously scanning the headlines and fearfully wondering if we're going to miss something. Our course has been set. Do you hear me, believers? We are of the day. So we pray, come Lord Jesus. And with great confidence and anticipation, we await for him to return without an ounce, a hint of anxiety or fear. After all, we've put on the armor of God. That's what he says in verse 8. He says, but let us who are of the day be sober, sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as with the helmet of of salvation, of hope, I'm sorry. It says in verse eight, uh, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here, Paul shifts to a new metaphor. He uses the metaphor of military armor. In fact, he actually highlights this triad that he's already given to us at the beginning of chapter one, verse three. You remember that long time ago where uh, he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience in, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, faith, love, and hope have been common themes throughout all of this letter. By faith, the Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. That was in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. By love, God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 13. By hope, here, the Thessalonians have been standing fast in the Lord. And that's really Paul's emphasis here. It's the same way Paul uses this emphasis of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, as he says, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Here, he's actually emphasizing hope. He does it in a number of ways. Hope here stands alone, whereas faith and love make up the breastplate. Hope is connected to the helmet all by itself. It stands in the final and climactic position. The helmet of hope is the helmet of salvation. Hope is the only virtue with a specific object of salvation. So it would seem it is their hope of salvation that Paul really wishes to emphasize here. Because it's their hope of salvation that will help them be ready and steady as they wait upon the Lord. Because as we'll see next in verses 9 and 10, after all... The day of the Lord is a day of salvation. Did you know that? The day of the Lord is a day of salvation, friends. That is good news and is clearly seen in the text. We start in verse 9. Verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not appointed to wrath but to obtaining salvation. And then he says in verse 10, uh, he says, who died for us, that whether awake or sleep, we should live together with him. Do you see that? Our salvation is destined for us. 
We are destined to obtain this salvation. In fact, what Paul's going to do now is he's going to give the Thessalonian believers, and by virtue of his word and faith in Christ, us today, two reasons that we can put our confidence in this wonderful truth. That the day of, of the Lord will be a day of salvation for God's people. He's going to give us two reasons why we can put our confidence in that truth. The first reason he gives us is the fact that God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God. Paul has emphasized God's sovereignty and God's primary work of his sovereignty in our salvation all throughout his letter. Just look throughout all this text and see what he says. In, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. In chapter 2, verse 12, he tells us that God calls you into his own kingdom and Glory, own kingdom and glory. In chapter 3, verse 3, it was God who had appointed them to affliction. In chapter 4, verse 12, or verse 7, it was God who called them not to uncleanness, but to holiness. Paul ends this entire book in chapter 5, verse 24, by saying, He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. So also here, the Thessalonians have nothing to fear in regards to the day of the Lord. Because it's the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God who has appointed them. Not for wrath, but for salvation. Do we need any other reason to have great confidence in that day? Any other reason? Well, even if we don't, he's going to give us another one. The second reason is actually stated in the rest of verse 9 and the first part of verse 10. We are destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. That is the second reason right there, the work of Jesus Christ. Their obtaining salvation instead of wrath is ultimately dependent on the work of Christ. It's grounded in a sacrifice. You guys realize, right, that we, we were of darkness Everyone hearing this at one point belonged to the night. We were objects of wrath, of sleep, drunk beyond measure and beyond recovery. We are only here this morning as children of light because of Christ and because of his work. Because he lived the life that we could not live and he died the death we were supposed to. Redeeming us from darkness, from the night. So by the power of God through Christ, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Son, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. So we are children of light because the light of the world has died for us. We are children of the day because the Lord of that day died for us. Our confidence is in him. How great can that confidence be since it is in him? The promise of God grounded in eternity past, the fulfillment of that work in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the very reality that calls us to live steady and ready. So we don't fight to stay awake so that we might be ready when the Lord Jesus returns. We fight to stay awake because of who we are, children of light. Children of light don't sleep. That's what children of night do. That's not who we are. We don't fight to stay sober so that we can steadily walk the narrow path when the Lord Jesus returns. We stay sober because we're children of the day. Children of the day don't get drunk. That's what children of the night do, but that is not who we are anymore. We recall that sudden destruction will come upon the children of the night. But we are children of the light. God has appointed us for salvation according to his good, perfect, and immutable will. 
We know this is the case because Jesus died for us so that, Paul continues, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. See here, Paul now skillfully reintroduces that final idea in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It's back into the euphemism of sleep as death. He comforts his Thessalonian readers by assuring them that all the members of their church family, those who are alive again when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and those who have fallen asleep before the day of the Lord will live with Christ. And so Paul concludes with our last and final point in our closure of this sermon, that the day of the Lord should not cause fear. It should be a source of great comfort and edification. The day of the Lord should not cause fear. It should be a source of great comfort and edification. And of course, that's clearly seen for us in verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Church, we should not find it difficult to comfort and edify one another with these words. No one will escape the sudden destruction that comes on the day of the Lord. But we don't need to be concerned about how we're going to open up the peanut butter. Because on that day, when the Lord returns, his kingdom will be consummated. All that he accomplished in his first advent will finally and completely be consummated in his second. We, brothers and sisters, we are of that day. We belong to that day. We will be ready and steady because we are children of light purchased by Christ and destined by God for salvation. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let's go together and thank him. Father, Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. Lord, you know that at times when we ponder that impending day of the Lord, when we ponder your return, when your son returns to judge in righteousness, to redeem all of creation, that it can at times provoke fear and anxiety in us. Father, we ask that you might impress this word upon our hearts, that we would indeed be a people who are expectant, ready, longing for the return of your Son, walking steadily, plotting down the narrow path that leads us unto salvation. We thank you that you have appointed us for this, that having our confidence grounded in the finished work of Christ, we can be confident indeed. Lord, thank you. What a marvelous gift this is. And we pray this all in the name of our King Jesus. Amen and amen. Friends, as we come to the time of our invitation for the church, hopefully it's been crystal clear for you what needs to take place. Let me ask you, are you ready for the Lord to return? Are, are, are you steady? Are you well-balanced in waiting, being sober-minded? Or are you asleep? Are you asking of those that will be surprised? Friends, we ought not to be surprised that the day the Lord is approaching. We ought to be eagerly expecting and awaiting because we know we belong to that day. And secondly, again, this is an opportunity and a charge to the church to comfort and edify one another with doctrine. Friends, my conviction is we can't comfort and edify one another because we don't know what God's word says. And so when we come across passages that we come across this week and the week before that explicitly say, hey, look, take the truth of this, be able to articulate what this is saying and use it to comfort one another, that we need to take that seriously and do it. That's clearly the application for us. But I wonder, 
maybe you're one of those who is looking at all the signs and wondering when the return of Christ is. And I wonder if it could be in your heart of hearts, it's because you know that you don't really know him. And so you may be putting your faith and hope and banking on uh, some sort of eschatological doctrine that says you might have another chance when the Lord comes. Friends, don't do that. Uh, you are children of darkness. If, if you're not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you are children of the night. And there will not be a chance for you. There, your chance is now. Your opportunity is now. You have heard the gospel. You have heard who we are. We want you to join hands with us in eager anticipation to know it is far better for the Lord to return and consummate his kingdom. So if the Lord's convicted you that, that maybe you know uh, the reason why you are in, in, anxio- in, in anxiety and fear over the return of the Lord is because you don't really have confidence that you know him, please, please reach out to us and hear this gospel message. Hear what Christ has done on the cross and transferring those who are in the darkness into the kingdom of his son. That can be you today if you would but repent and believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would repent and trust in him as your king, as your Lord. You would serve him faithfully uh, by faith. His grace is sufficient for you. Would you come and embrace him today? And if you have any questions about that, of course, please contact myself or Pastor Justin. You can find our email on our website. Whatever we could do to help you, we are here for you, church. We love you. I don't know about you, but come quickly, Lord Jesus. That is my prayer, and I cannot wait for that day. I am in eager anticipation for that day. I hope you join me with that. Thank you, church family. I love you. Please have a wonderful week. Stay safe. We're praying for you. Always here if you need us. God bless you.